Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast, now in association with the Songbird HQ. Go to the songbirdhq.com for all your musical needs, latest news, reviews and interviews with some of the best signed and unsigned bands. The Songbird HQ also deliver PR services for new talent coming through. This week's guest on the podcast is Pete Jones, also known as Pete Welsh. Pete's wrote a book all about the Libertines called Kids in the Riot, High and Low with the Libertines. He was also in Naughty's band Kill City. We spoke about all this, we spoke about the Libertine story in great depth. As usual at the end, Pete picked his heroes. We discussed all this and much more. Hope you're all enjoying the podcast. I'll be back soon with another guest. Until then, head over to thesongbirdhq.com and check out the website. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Peter Jones. Is it Peter Jones or Pete Jones? Ah, uh, Pete. Pete Jones, uh, also known as Pete Welsh. Right. Or Welsh Pete, or on Facebook, Jack Jones. But we're calling him Pete Jones. So, Pete, you wrote the Libertines book, Kids in the Riot. Uh, sure. You were also in Naughty's band, Kill City amongst lots of other things. So what I like to do is just go back to the start, where you grew up, what life was like for a young Pete Jones. Yeah, well, I'm from South Wales, from a little town called Port Talbot, which is uh, famous for uh, people like Richard Burton, Anthony Hopkins, and later Michael Sheen. So it's got a, a, an acting pedigree. It's a big steelworks town. Um, I hated it as a kid, <laughs> uh, like, you, like you do, you know. Um, and I left when I was 21, moved to London, uh, really wanted to get into, into bands. Um, I'd been playing guitar for a short while by then. So came to London just with my guitar and, uh, you know, a dream, if you like. Uh, that was in 94, right at the start of Britpop. So I sort of hit Camden, sort of sold all my old football, because I was a football fan, a bit of a football casual, you could say, you know, and all the Stone Island stuff. I sold all that to fund my move to London. Grew my hair, started wearing tight trousers, and um, found myself in Camden at the start of the Britpop thing, um, which was just a you know a complete uh, lifestyle change and a, and a culture change really. Um, and I loved it. Uh, got in a couple of little bands, mucking around around Camden on the fringes of the Britpop scene. Got to know bands like Menswear, who you might remember were were a sort of a, a Britpop band that had a lot of hype around them. People like Graham Coxon, all from just drinking in the uh, the Good Mixer pub in Camden. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was where I was in my early twenties, looking to be a pop star. Uh, it never happened, but I sort of became very good friends. Well, the first person I met when I moved to London was a guy called Mick Whitnall, who I'm sure you're well uh-huh. well aware of. Um, he at the time was in uh, was working in Carnaby Street. Got me a job in a mod shop down there. We became fast friends. Uh, he had a ska band called 100 Men. He was like a skinhead kind of guy in those days and was very much into his uh, ska, rock steady, blue beat. 
And um, we just became great friends, you know, inseparable, really, for the next 10 years. And a lot changed over that time. And during that course of time, from 94 to 2004, of course, the Libertines happened. Um, Britpop came and went, if you like. And my first meeting with Pete Doherty would have been at the tail end of Britpop, which would have been 1997, when mm -hmm. he would have been doing a bit of quick maths, I guess, 18. Um, and that brings us on to, this, I suppose, the, the second act in my sort of London life, uh, which was, which was, you know, heavily influenced by the Libertines and led to the writing of the book. Right. So when you met Pete, am I right in thinking, was he playing Charles and Dave or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, drinking in Camden, as I had been for three or four years and getting to know lots of people, you'd often end up back at someone's flat. Um, and I remember one night sitting around a dozen people, perhaps drinking after, you know, the pubs and clubs had shut. And he was sitting on the floor cross-legged with a guitar and he was playing Chaz and Dave. And I remember thinking, it's an unusual thing to be playing, you know, it's, it's not, not something you'd expect a youngster to be really into. And he had real sort of nerve to, to sort of sit there and hold an audience, although not everyone was paying attention to him. Um, and I thought, he's got charisma. He's an interesting young lad. I would have been five or six years older. And um, yeah, that was my first experience of him um, as sort of a sort of a chirpy young buck, um, popular with people, you know, uh, cheeky. And he could play guitar and he could sing. And I just thought it was very strange that he was playing Chaz and Dave. You know, you might, might expect to play Oasis or Blur at that. Uh, and um, yeah, I'd see him around then for the next couple of years during which time I was trying to get a band of my own together and uh, my advert in a guitar shop in Camden was answered by a young John Hassel mm -hmm. who, uh, who would later become the Libertines bass player obviously so that was where it all started to cross pollinate slightly I don't think John knew Pete and Carl at that time I certainly didn't know Carl I'd met Pete and I would see him around John joined my band. He was 15, 16. I was 23, 24. So it was a big age gap. Mm -hmm. Tom Bowen, I know you've spoken to as well, was, was the guitar player. So it was me and Tom, basically, and a succession of drummers, and John on bass. And John was a lovely kid, 15, 16, but, you know, he won't mind me saying this. He was a bit immature at the time. Right. So, you know, the age gap was, was, a, was a bit troubling. What he did have, and I know Pete and Carl said the same thing when they met him, was he had a house in the middle of Kentish town where he lived with his mum with a basement where he could rehearse with all top of the range equipment. Uh, you know, we thought this was manna from heaven at the time because, we, you know, you didn't have to pay for a rehearse room anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, his mum would come in and tell him to turn it down. He would tell him to go away or words to that effect, which I found <laughs> quite strange because I would never have spoken to my mother like that. But he was a typical adolescent and, you know, he was smoking dope and, uh, he was just a, you know, a, a troubled youth, if you like. But he, we got on really well with him. We loved him to bits. And um, it was great to, to, be, to, to make music with him for about six, eight months. Then it got to the point where we just thought, he's a bit too young for us. And even though he comes with great guitars, great musicianship, I mean, he was a better musician than I was even then, mm -hmm. uh, at the age of 15, 16. It was time to get him, let him go. And I come back to Mick Whitnor, who was, you know, we were hanging out with all the time and, you know, he was our best mate. He was waiting in the wings to play bass and he was a better option, really. So, regrettably, we had to let John go and everything that went with it, uh, his equipment and his rehearsal space. Right. Uh, 
So, you know, it wasn't an easy decision to make, but uh, John went, then Mick came in, he became a bit more professional. We got a little bit of a deal with, um, I can't remember who it was now, CBS or someone like that to record a demo. Right. We got the old menswear drummer in, a guy called Tud. So it started went up a level then, you know, we, we, we recorded a demo and it looked like we might get a deal. So it was really good. Meanwhile, John, who we'd sort of sacked and I, I've since found out was really upset about it. Um, you know, he, he took it pretty hard. About a week after we'd let him go, he bumped into these two new lads in London uh, who were, you know, looking to form a band called Pete Doherty and Carl Barat. So, you know, I knew Pete a little bit by this stage. He didn't know Carl. So you could say we did John a massive favour because uh, we sacked him from a band that wasn't really going anywhere. And he mm. met up with two guys who would become an era-defining band with him on board. And uh, so it all turned out well in the end for John. Right. And, I mean, obviously at this time, the Libertines, they weren't known as the Libertines, they were known as the Strand. And I mean, there's lo lots of lineup changes in this at that point. You had uh, Scarborough Steve yeah. before John came in, the drummer, Mr. Raz Cox. Yeah, well, I believe he died last year. Um, yeah. I just I heard that recently. That's sad. I met him a few times back back then. Nice guy. Again, very, very unusual. Um, like Pete and Carl, you quickly realised that a real disregard for convention. You know, they had. Uh, and a geriatric drummer. They didn't seem to care that that didn't make the image of the band look too too good. Mm. Um, they had a revolving door of, of personnel. You know, Scarborough Steve at that time was maybe still is an alcoholic. You know, he was a shambling drunk. He made Pete and Carl look very professional, really. Right. Steve, I like Steve, but um, you know, they 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 were known as ramshackle. They didn't have much regard for the conventions of of being. A, the band was what we were trying to we wanted to we wanted to be professional if you like and um they went they flew in the face of that and it was quite you know refreshing i suppose because they didn't really give a shit about whether they had a geriatric drummer or not and um whether they could get through a song or whether they had a set list so they were really really ramshackle and different and you know far from fully formed at that stage so um you know those early days of the liberties i think i saw them in in filthy mcnasties um, and nobody really took them seriously because they didn't take them themselves seriously or so yeah. much time. I've since found out that they were they had you know burning ambition and drive, but at the time they looked like they were just doing it for a laugh, you know. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, another character that that was involved at some point was um, John's pal Johnny Burrell. That's right. Yeah. Um, what extent was his involvement? Because it's kind of. It depends what you read and where you read it as to, to how much involvement he had. Yeah, um, well, I can shed some light on that. Yeah, I suppose Johnny Burrell, I met him round at John's house where we, you know, where we used to rehearse, uh, pre-John joining the Libertines. Johnny was just a mate of John's. They went to school together and would hang out with him. Again, they were smoking dope together, doing the hard stuff as well, even back then, which I thought, you know, 16, 17. Mm -hmm. that, was pretty, that was pretty unusual, I thought, you know, but I, I, I guess it wasn't so much. But um, so Johnny Burrell would, would have been part of that, what I just said, a revolving door of people coming through the Libertines. Uh, clearly had his own ideas and went on to have more, I suppose, commercial success than the Libertines. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, he would have just been someone who was around, and you know, it, it, the attitude back then was, you know, if you've got a guitar and you want to be part of this, uh, you can join in if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no set that. And again, I come back to what was so different about them. They didn't seem to have um, conventional ideas about being in a band. You know, if you were there, get up on stage, join in. There was a guy called the Rabbi who was a, a freaky-looking old guy who would get on stage and sing with them. And that wasn't my idea of a band. You know, my idea was there's the four of us. Uh-huh. We're, doing, we're doing this properly, you know. We're going to look good. We're going to do this, and quite regimented. And they were completely different to that. And of course, they were huge, they went on to huge success, becoming much more professional down the line. But uh, it was um, they were you know they were, they were very ramshackle is the word I keep using about them. You yeah. know, with, a, with 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 anybody you know you could get up. I mean, Steve would fall off stage. John was the most professional of them, if, if I'm honest. You know, he mm-hmm. was rock solid even then. Uh, and the drummer as well, the old guy, he would, you know, try and keep time because he had conventional ideas about what a band should be, like John did. But Pete and Carl would just pinball around the stage and whoever uh-huh. wanted to get on stage with them would be It just, part. it just, it doesn't, like, whenever, whenever I think of Johnny Burrell, obviously, I, I love Razor Light as well. Johnny's mm-hmm. a big, massive character. And I just mm-hmm. think there's no way it could work with Pete and Carl and Johnny three big oh. characters on that band. It, it would never have lasted. Absolutely not. And, and it didn't last. And uh, it makes you wonder how it even got off the ground in the first place. Because like I say, Johnny had, had great ideas of his own. You can't argue with his back catalogue, what he's gone on to do. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, there's three, I say egos. I mean, Johnny's certainly got an ego. Pete and Carl, I've never really defined as being egocentric because they, they they were so lush and, uh, and, and just laid back, if you like. I mean, they certainly have got egos, but um, nothing like Johnny Burrell's. And they were just in it for a laugh, really. They weren't focused, or they didn't seem mm. to be focused. I mean, I've since gone on when I was writing the book, and, you know, they, they clearly wanted to get to where they were going, but they were so haphazard in the way they went about it, you wouldn't categorise it as a professional approach to yeah. becoming a pop star or, or you know. But they, they, you know, they had their sights on getting with Rough Trade because of the Smiths connection. And everything they set out to do, albeit in a very haphazard, unconventional way, they ended up doing. Brilliant. And all this was going on within the good mixer then, or you get people coming in and out of there all the time. I've been in the good mixer once, um, and I never met anybody famous. Uh, yeah, well, this now, this is slightly different. This is this would be sort of 98, 99. The good mixer heyday had passed then, and the good mixer was sort of 93, 94, 95. Right. The Brit there, you know. So Pete and Carl and even John would have missed that because they were too young. By this time now, things had moved, if you like, or the Libertine scene or the Johnny Burrell kind of crowd had relocated, or not relocated because they were never there in the first place. But it, this is all happening in a pub called Flutty McNasty's. Right, right. Which is in Islington, which isn't Camden. So I was slightly off the beaten track, just around the back of Angel Station around there. And... Um, I think it all be, became, Shane McGowan was certainly associated with that pub because he, I think he had a stake in it. Um, and, you know, you'd see Sinead O'Connor in there and people like that through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was very much an Irish thing. Pete, having Irish roots, I think he got a job there. I think he, it already had a musical kind of um, base to it, but he started bringing younger people in, uh, his friends. And then he, just because he worked there, he had, you know, he could, whatever nights he wanted to 
I think you might have got Carla job there as well. Um, and suddenly this scene that was similar to the, to the Good Mixer three or four years prior sprung up at Fuzzy McNasty's. And um, that's where it all kicked off. And they were wild nights there, I'm talking about 99, 2000, 2001, just before they got signed, where this storm was brewing, where people were starting to come down, A&R guys, and there was a real crowd. The Queens of Noise, uh, Maraid and Tabitha, who were friends of Pete and Carl's, you know, they mm -hmm. were coming, coming up with their own ideas, so they'd be DJing. Um, they were put on nights, and it was they were creating their own scene. I mean, you've got to give them credit for that. They, they created it from scratch. And it was yeah. uh, it was a kind of a, there was poetry in there as well. It was really esoteric, arty kind of thing, and that's credit to Pete, really. Um, you know, he was into all those things, and uh, they created their own little buzz and their own little vibe. And suddenly, people started drifting over from Camden to Filthy McNasty's, and um, it helped that I was working in a shop around the corner from there at the time, and Mick Whitmore was as well. So we was drink there anyway because it was our local. Mm -hmm. So we got caught up in that thing. I mean, you know, we, we obviously we knew John from pre previous and um, we could see that it was getting going with them. You know, that this after three years of being regarded as a bit, a little bit of a joke, really, because they didn't take themselves too seriously. They suddenly they had Gary on drums by now. Mm -hmm. And because he'd come from playing with Eddie Grant and, 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 and you know, he was a very professional. Yeah, he had a very good pedigree, didn't he? Absolutely. I mean, he was brilliant. And he just lifted them up again. And then you had John's bass playing locked in with, with Gary. They suddenly had a rhythm section that was as good as anybody. That allowed Pete and Carl, who had a much less professional approach, to um, just float over the top with those two guys and pinball off each other on stage and, and, and drop the ball, if you like, but in a charming way that, that captivated audiences and uh suddenly they were a serious proposition and you know we're talking about this would have been late 2001 i think that's when they signed the rough trade deal yeah so obviously barney would be managing them be then obviously she would have helped as well was it barney then that brought gary powell in i think it was yeah i didn't really know i mean i got to know her a little later on uh she, you know, was swept away by, she had, I think she was a, uh, a lawyer. She wasn't even in music, but she was a lawyer and she was very, very smart, very savvy. And she was just captivated by these guys. I think she had a soft spot for Scarborough Steve in, in the first place. He was a good looking guy in those days. I wonder what he looks like these days. Pretty ravaged, <laughs> ravaged I'd imagine. Um, but yeah, so she, she brought some professionalism and some nose to the, to the, to the band. And she brokered a deal with uh, Rough Trade and everything just sort of swept up. And the next thing I knew, they were running around town with loads of money in their pockets, which they never had before. They were always on, on the ponce. And um, suddenly they were, they, were, they were signed to Rough Trade and you couldn't really believe that it had happened. And it all sort of tightened up from there. They became, you know, uh, the geriatric drummer had gone. The sort of, the, the, they, 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 act, they smartened up their act, basically. Mm -hmm. The Libertines, as the public would come to know them, outside of this little London-centric scene, um, was born. Yeah. So at this point, then, what was going on with your band? Obviously, we, we never mentioned the name, the Samaritans. That's um, right. But what, what was going on with yourselves? Were you still... Yeah, that, that had come and gone, really. And then that was... Um, that had come and gone... By the by, two thousand. So me, Mick, Tom, and Tug from Menswear, we went our separate ways. All still pals still. 
And around about the time of the Libertines getting the getting the uh, the rough trade deal, that was when me and Tom met this lady called Lisa Moorish, mm-hmm. who's a great friend to this day. She was putting a band together, and uh, we met her in the Dublin Castle in Camden. And she said, we knew who she was because she'd done a, a dance, like uh, she'd done a profile as a dance artist years previous. Yeah. And she was kind of well-known for one thing or another. And um, she bumped into me and Tom. I had long hair in those days. He had long hair. We looked like a band straight away. She went, <laughs> oh, I've got a bass player and a guitar player in one spell swoop. I'm ready to go. And uh, she had a deal with Alan McGee. That's right. And I knew Alan a little bit anyway from going to his club nights in the Nottingham Arts Club. So mm-hmm. it was just a nice, it all fell into place nicely. We thought, well, if Alan McGee's behind this, we'll have a bit of that. I mean, who wouldn't, you know? Um, Lisa was great as well. We got on with her straight away. And Kill City was formed from there. Um, and, you know, we, we knew the Libertines. And so we went hand in hand with them a little bit from there. Yeah. From that yeah. onwards. We shot a video in the, in the Albion rooms. Um, and Lisa was getting to know Pete, you know, obviously they've got a kid together now. Um, and we just became part of that scene. So, uh, you know, there was a scene springing up around the Libertines now. Bands, mm-hmm. copycat bands. Kill City were never a copycat band because we had an electro kind of thing going on. Yeah. Uh, but we had the same punky spirit. We were a little bit older than them. So, you know, we felt a little bit like, are we, should we really be part of this crowd? But uh, lots of bands springing up, you know, out of Filthy McNasties. And um, yeah, we went hand in hand with the Libertines for those first couple of years. And it was a, mm-hmm. it was great to be part of that, that world. So uh, going back to the Libertines, obviously the signing with Rough Trade, which mm. is a major, it's a major deal really. Rough Trade is one of the best record labels around. Yeah. Um, James Endicott was it signed him with it. That's right, and he um, just signed the, signed the Strokes. So again, outside of London, outside of the UK, a, wild, a wider thing was happening with. Garagey sounding bands were coming into vogue. You know, you had uh, the White Stripes kind of kicked it off, I suppose. Then the Strokes arrived, and you know there was suddenly a, you know, skinny guitar, skinny legged guitarists with a thing, you know, and a, looking like Blondie um, with a New York kind of vibe, like like the Strokes had, and that was massive. You know, the Strokes became a cultural phenomenon, and Rough Trade had signed them, and then the Libertines sprung up maybe a year after or came to their attention. And suddenly James realised there's a there's like there's a London version of the Strokes here. That's yeah. being a little unkind to the Liberties because they had their own thing going on. But on the surface, that's what they were doing. They were doing the same kind of angular, scratchy guitar sounds, new wave sounding kind of thing. And uh, there was a great synergy between the New York scene and what was coming up in London. And then for, for Rough Trade to get the Strokes and the Libertines on, you know, both mm-hmm. sides, that was well, massive. The stro- I mean, the Strokes comes up a lot on the podcast because obviously before that, like when the Strokes kind of broke into the the British music, I mean, there was there wasn't much going on at that point. No. You had like uh, Lamp Biscuit and stuff like that, and the the British stuff was all kind of acoustic-y type, kind of safe. Yeah. I suppose you had stuff like that. Star Sailor and people like that, and yeah, it was all a bit sort of. Um, you know, and then you had, you know, your Oasis sort of wannabes like Embrace and stuff. And mm-hmm. Oasis by this stage as well. And of course, everybody loves Oasis, but they started to sound really podgy and pedestrian. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and, and, you know, and they, were, they were like a stadium band long before that. And you couldn't really get to them. 
and the Libertines came along, and that's why that's you know I always think there was a, a sort of a parallel between them and Oasis. They they suddenly blew them away in a, in a sense. Obviously, mm-hmm. history will be kinder to Oasis than the Libertines because they, they achieved more. But at that time, they made them look like um, stodgy, uh, you know, prog rockers almost, you know, because they came yeah. along with this punk spirit. That's what was so exciting about the Libertines. And of course, the Strokes as well. And suddenly bands like Oasis looked like they were, you know, the dad rock was the term that was yeah. around. It, it felt like a change, didn't it? It felt like something big was happening. Yeah, you know, and the White Stripes kicked it off, you know, in a big way. So the Strokes, the Libertines, and I think there were a band like called the Vines. They were they were big for a short while. Yeah, uh, kind of a more grungy they would have been, I suppose. But there was definitely a, a, a refer, return to scratchy guitar rock and uh, and skinny 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 jeans. And and it's it was you know right up my alley because I was into all that you know punk and the CBGBs kind of bands. And this is what, what was happening suddenly at the turn of the century, 2001, 2002. And uh, the Libertines were at the epicentre of it. Mm. Obviously, one of the, the most famous pictures of the Libertines is uh, the one of the four of them with the red guards jackets. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think after that, it seemed like every other band was wearing these military jackets. I can mind the Strokes. I mind Julian Casablanca's wearing one. Yeah. And I can mind um, Hope of the States. They were the that's same. Right, they, yeah. they used to wear them as well. So, yeah. I mean, that's a big change in look because it, at the start, they were more... They used to wear suits and stuff like that, didn't they? That's right, yeah. They're just those charity shop chic, if you like. Um, funny enough, I mentioned menswear earlier on. He, uh, he wore a, a guard's tunic on top of the Pops when they went on there, you know, five, six years earlier. So you've got to give him credit, really. He was the first guy I ever saw. I mean, it was, it, it was a Beatles-y kind of look, really, wasn't it? Because the Beatles had the similar kind of tunics. They weren't yeah. guard jackets, but it was a it was a regimented Beatles kind of look. Um, you know, I don't recall Pete and Carl wearing those coats. I know John and Gary didn't like being seen in them in public because it was a pretty loud jacket to wear. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't recall Pete and Carl wearing them to the pub very often I mean they wore them for those photos with Roger Sargent uh, and uh, they wore them on stage a few times but they wouldn't go walk down the street in them too often uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because it, it's so iconic seeing those yeah. pictures yeah, and maybe so good them. yeah maybe I'm remembering it wrong but I don't remember seeing them in it very often I know one time Pete left his one at my house and um, I had it for about three months, and he finally took it back off me. And I wish I wish I'd held on to it now because uh, it'd be worth a few quid. But um, no, he, 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 I, I was always going to give it back to him. Uh, but yeah, they, they, you know, they, they, they managed to marry image and sound in a way that was really brilliant at that time. And it, you know, I got swept up in. I was older than them, and they were my favourite band. You know, I don't mind saying that. They were exci- really exciting. They had an energy that you wanted to be around. Uh, they were as close to the clash, I suppose, that, that I was going to see. I was too young for that. Or my favourite band. I was too young to be around in those days. And so there was just this punk energy, which I was really, you know, chuffed to be part of and be swept along with them because we did a couple of tours with them. And we played lots of times around London with them in various little dives. Guerrilla gigs and, and all that sort of stuff. That was really exciting to be part of because that was totally fresh. 
Mm-hmm. And that was so that was completely Pete's doing. Pete and Carl's doing was this this guerrilla gig thing. You know, it was the early days of the internet. You could suddenly just say, "There's going to be a shindig tonight. Ten pound on the door." You'd suddenly have two hundred kids turning up. Yeah, was, uh, I think Pete quickly realised. You know, it was a uh, it was it wasn't a philanthropic gesture. It was you know it was quickly a money making venture as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it was a it was a fantastic thing to be part of. I mean, it wasn't great for their neighbours, but um, uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was really exciting. You know, it, and and so many really. I remember there was an article in the NME, and it was kind of like Pete was stood there, and you had about forty members of different bands. It was quite an iconic picture, and they were all looking at him. And within a year, this is of them having the record deal. It's mm-hmm. all these copycat bands or bands inspired by them had sprung up. A lot of them not very good. Uh, but, you know, it was, really was. It really happened really quickly. Uh, by the summer of 2003, they were really hot and they'd inspired all these bands. The NME couldn't resist putting them on the cover. I mean, yeah. I, think, you know, they, I think they went on to be the, the, the band that featured on the cover most of any band ever. Which mm-hmm. tells you, which tells you how exciting it was, and how the re- revitalised the music press at the time. Yeah, because it gave it gave them, you know, these pretty boys to put on the cover. Uh, was inspiring massive sort of really sort of fanatical fan base. So it really was a cultural. Um, I don't think it's had the credit in hindsight that it that it deserves. During recordings, they were initially Bernard Butler was brought in um, to produce. Were you, you were a bit during the Britpop days or tail end of Britpop, so were you aware of Bernard Butler? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I liked Suede up to a point. I mean, I wasn't mad, mad about them, but that wasn't, uh, I think that was a rough trade idea to bring Bernard in. Obviously, he's a big name, super talented. Uh, I don't think he got on very well with them. Yeah. And I don't think they were happy with the, with the recording they did with him. And then, of course, Jeanette Lee, who was, uh, who'd been in Public Image Limited and was, Jeff's partner in Rough Trade, Jeff Travis's partner. She knew Mick Jones obviously really well um, and decided to bring him in. And that was just inspired because you suddenly had this band that looked and sounded a little bit like The Clash, uh, produced by one of The Clash, which was just a a marriage made in heaven, even Mm -hmm. though he was incredibly hands-off in his approach. Um, You know, an example of Pete's generosity, he knew I was a massive Clash fan. He just dropped it into the conversation one day. He said, oh, Mick Jones is producing us. I said, what? He said, yeah, come down and just hang at the studio tomorrow. I was like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't wait. You know, the next day I was I was there before Pete arrived. And, um, you know, I had a drink in the pub next door with, with John. And then we went to the studio in St. John's Wood next door. And there was Mick Jones. And I spent the next few days just hanging out there. I don't think Pete was there half the time. And this was, this was where it was all starting to unravel, even before he got going, if you like. Uh-huh. Just to be in the studio with Mick Jones, um, drinking, he always had a can of Stella in his hand and Spliff in the other hand. Um, just to be around him, hearing these old Clash stories, it's just fantastic. And um, I'll always be grateful to Pete for that. Oi, oi, you wonderful people out there. You're listening to the Time for Heroes podcast in association with the Songbird HQ. Bosh, get all over it. One thing you mentioned there, obviously, about it, even at that point, it was starting to unravel to a certain extent, obviously. And in, in the book, I think early on, Pete was quoted a couple of things he said about 
the rot setting in and the beginning of the end, even at that point, even, I mean, I think that was uh, before we had the, the record deal with Rough Trade. So do, do you think Pete kind of had a, a foreshadowing of what was going to go on? Do you think Pete was insecure in the relationship? With well, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't have noticed that at the time, to be honest. But you, you know, yeah, yeah, you read about it now, and it was they, they clearly had a, a multifaceted relationship that was mm-hmm. much deeper and crazier and fraught than anybody realised at the time. I mean, they used to fall out and, and you know fight each other and stuff, but that was no, that wasn't unusual for 22, 23 year old guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was unraveling. For, it was unraveling, really, from the minute they met each other. Um, and I learned that in the writing of the book, getting getting much more deeply into it. Um, and it was just a fraught relationship. And you know, I think I read something re- reasonably recently where Carl said it wasn't just the drugs at that, that time, it was mental illness. And yeah. uh, I think that that's definitely, uh, you know, that really changed me when I read that because they, you know, they, they, they're, pro- they're both pretty mad characters. Um, and you know all that testosterone and and you know you chuck a load of heavy drugs on top of it as well mm-hmm. you know that's why it was so explosive and that's why it unraveled very very quickly i mean we're talking about 2002 they're in the studio with mick jones by 2003 pete's gone to jail he's formed a breakaway band it's all yeah. kind of you know it, it, it had all collapsed around them really it went on to carry on you know in, in various forms but uh i could never understand why pete didn't want to put more into keeping it together because they worked so hard to get to a place where they were on the cover of magazines and they had a record deal. And he seemed to want to sabotage it, um, mm. the way he was behaving. And I remember thinking, God, I'd love to be in this position where you're, you suddenly got success because uh, my bands were just, were just limped on, never really got there. And he seemed to sort of want to tear it all down as soon as he got it. Um, and I think you've got to remember Carl, you know, slightly less crazy than Pete, but crazy in his own way. And we come back to what he said, you know, that they were both suffering mental illness at that time. And, yeah. uh, it's good to see them both in a good place now. But, uh, you know, you, you add all those, that, those ingredients in, youth, ego, drugs, and that's a lethal concoction. Um, mm. And, you know, the, the crowd that was around them as well, it was, you know, you know, it became very, very dark, very quickly. Yeah, it became a bit of a circus at that point as well. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, like, what we were talking about with, with Pete and Carol and the, their relationship, because obviously, like, me and my friend, I kind of, I always felt the same. Like, we used to go and see Libertines all the time, and I always, I always kind of thought about our relationship as Pete and Carol, mm. and he was... My friend was more like Carol and I was more like Pete. Like I always felt like I was relying on him to, to look after me and make sure I was all right. And that's kind of, that was always, always the impression I got uh, Pete and Carol's relationship was that Carol was always having to look out for Pete and kind of yeah, to a certain extent. That, that's a fair assumption. But, you know, I mean, he was only marginally more sensible than Pete in those days. Right. I mean... When I say sensible, I mean they were taking a shitload of drugs, and there's no there's no getting away from it. And it, it got very dark. You, you, when you're talking about heroin and, and crack, not the not the car was doing much of that. Um, it was you know it, they're very dark circles that you move in. 
Um, mm. There's not there's dodgy people around. It. It's 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 not it's not healthy. You know, it's not like just a heavy coke scene. It, it, this this is a dark, scuzzy world that can't be sustained really for for any length of time. And of course, people started dying around that scene. You know, I can think of a dozen people over the years who who I used to see around who, who, who succumbed to um because you know you just can't muck around. You, you look back at the CBGB scene, you know, with the the, the Heartbreakers and Johnny Thunders. Now they're mm. all dead now. You know, uh, because you you with those drugs. It's not like Fleetwood Mac with just doing loads of loads of beakers. These are dangerous drugs. Um, yeah. So it, it was a you know it quickly became a really scuzzy world to be part of, and that was a, that was a shame. That was because it took a lot of the innocence and a lot of the energy out of it. Um, and it's certainly you know I mean after the initial rush of success with the Libertines, when you start talking about Pete going to jail, it all became very very focused around drugs for him. Yeah. Um, and Carl was keeping his end up there as well because you know he was he was he was full throttle. Uh, you know they they were all nutty and I, John and Gary were the were the, were the calming influences, mm-hmm. but they didn't really have much input into in, you know because Pete and Carl were the faces of the band, um, and they had a different deal with Rough Trade to the, to the other guys. They were they they had their own deal. They, I think they got forty percent each, and John and Gary got ten percent each. So it was, it was a it was a toxic mix anyway because that's not how many bands operate. Yeah, so there were tensions always. I think. In, in 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 underlying in the band um and i know that james endicott and jeff travis were despairing of what was going on because you know i mean it, it burned so brightly initially and then pete was suddenly out of the band he was in jail um they limped on you know doing a doing a few dates with just carl and of course that's not the same at all no mm-hmm. disrespect no disrespect to carl but the deal is Pete and Carl, they were they had such an incredible chemistry and, and some, something completely different that people hadn't seen before. So you take one of them out of the equation, it just isn't the same. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, we're talking, this would have been 2003. For the next few years, it was just complete chaos. And the, the recording of the second album, I wasn't around for that, to be honest with you. Um, not in the studio anyway, but we did a tour with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, going, that, going back about, obviously... You, you toured with Kill City, toured with him, the upper bracket tour, which also involved Left Hand as well. Yeah. Alan Wass. Is that this, is this a tour where Hooligans and E came about as well? Correct, yeah, that would have been. That was in a where Pete and I sort of co-wrote that, knocked it about in a Cardiff hotel room. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, it was still fairly innocent then. That would have been mm-hmm. September 2002. Um, there were no heavy drugs on that tour, as I recall. Because you you know you, you simply couldn't access them in Plymouth and Bournemouth and places like that. Peter didn't have the street smarts at that time to to go off and score drugs. Uh, there'd be bits of bobs floating around, but it was generally just you know booze fueled hijinks. I was still on a tight budget in those days. I mean they had a tour bus. We were in the back of a, a splitter van. Left hand were in a carpet van. You know, in, in, in just sort of falling out the back of that. Mm-hmm. It was all useful hijinks really on that on that tour. Um, and of course the album hadn't come out, the album came out during that tour, that's right. So it was still small venues, albeit packed to the rafters, full of yeah. enthusiastic fans. Cause they'd done a little mini tour before that, before they had any press. And they'd already built, built up a little fan base. People were turning up in their own sort of homemade Libertines t-shirts and scoring on their jeans and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they already, they'd already wet the appetite 
uh, around the provincial towns of the UK, uh, ready for that up the bracket tour, when suddenly the press came on board and, uh, you know, they became uh, a very cult, you know, hot prospect. And the enemy would seem to be there at every turn to, to report on it and mm-hmm. gave them a real leg up because they could see there was something exciting happening here. There, there was a, this really good looking, exciting, chaotic, um, crazy band with great tunes as well. The, you know, the whole package. Yeah. Um, so they came on board early doors and sort of covered every step of it. That's, a, I think a lot of that's forgotten. That. Obviously, a lot of people kind of say about the, the tabloids and some of the people at NME gave them bad press, but I mean, I spoke to Anthony Thornton for the podcast and mm. obviously he ended up writing a book about them, the same as yourself. Sure. Um, and he was massively supportive of the Libertines and obviously you had Roger Sargent uh, yeah. doing a lot of the photography. So they did have the backing there. Big time, yeah. I mean, what, and Anthony, as I recall, he was, you know, like myself, you know, we, we just loved this band. We were weren't ashamed to say it. Like Anthony was a bit older than them, like, like, like myself. But um, it was exactly what you were looking for. You were looking for a new wavy sounding band, punky sounding band that looked great, had great songs, great attitude. It was everything you wanted, really. They, were, they would have been my favourite band if I'd been 15, 16, um, or as I was at the time, you know, pushing 30. Um, you know, they, and Roger Sargent, he's older than me. He, he loved them, you know, so they definitely had something that, that, that inspired and excited, not just the youngsters, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, people my age. Um, and the music press just went, went crazy for them. I mean, the NME... I people got a bit sick of them putting them on the cover all the time, you know. Um, but because they were so photogenic and they were so charismatic, it was too good to miss. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were streets ahead of other bands in terms of energy and charisma. Um, they were exciting to, to be around, for sure. So obviously, touching back again on Hooligans and E, who, would, who, who gets the credit for that then? Well, I, I, I think it's meant to say Doherty Jones, which would, you know, I'd love to see that. And I'm not sure if it, that when Kill City put it out, it said that. He was not, I, I came back from a football match where a few of my pals had been taking E at half time. And he, he started um, knocking it into shape on a guitar. And I threw a few lines in. He came up with the tune. It's mostly his song, but it was, you know, it was inspired by my recollections uh-huh. of the day. And I chucked in a few lines, the Akaskutum line, the Burberry line, meat pies. So uh, it's, it's a co-write, really. Um, uh-huh. the, the, the irony was, at the time, Alan McGee had come on board as manager of the, of the Liberties. That stage. He loved it. He wanted to re- release it as a single. And um, I would have loved that because that would have been a massive payday. Um, and I, that never happened. And I had to watch Wolfman get a co-credit on, on something, make a lot mm-hmm. of money from it. I had to watch Mark Hamilton, sadly no longer with us now, Mark Keds, who'd been in senseless things. He got a co-write on Can't Stand Me Now, made a lot of money from it. Um, so these two guys who were part of the swing circle as myself got managed to get co-writes on Liberty's singles and um, did well out of it. The one which I co-wrote and McGee wanted to come out, I think it was deemed as too... Um, it's too sort of, you know, it would have been censored for radio, you know, because it was mentioned in drugs. Uh, so it never saw the light of day, but I believe it's, you know, popular amongst Baby Shambles fans, Libertines fans. Uh, yeah. And it went yeah. down well at Kill City gigs as well. So 
Um, it's a good song. It's a good song, whichever way, whichever way you hear it. The Kill City version is good with Lisa on the vocals. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the one that I heard first. I heard Kill City version um, yeah. and I loved it. And then I can mind going down to my pals and um, he was playing the, it was like a ramshackle kind of baby shambles version he had. But I yeah. always preferred the Kill City one. I liked the, I liked yeah. the production on the Kill City one. Yeah, that was good fun making that. That was uh, we were let loose in a really like good studio. Alan McGee put, put us in, and uh, we really enjoyed making that. We did a good video for it as well. Um, but yeah, if, if Libertines had, or Baby Shamas had recorded a, a you know a high end version of it, it could have been a hit, um, as opposed to a, a sort of a bit of a cult hit as it is now amongst amongst their fans. But um, yeah, it wasn't meant to be. But uh, good fun and. Um, I haven't heard it myself for a few, many a year, so I'm going to have to dig it out, give it a spin. Mm. I've got it on seven-inch here somewhere, I think, yeah. Obviously, you, you mentioned Wolfman, and it, it kind of gets me onto the, the kind of, the people that were about, around about then, there was like the, probably the, the, the bad influences on Pete at that point, but yeah. obviously that being... if you touch back right to Scarborough Steve, you've got characters like this, Right, right through the Libertine story, but mm. people like Wolfman and Scarborough Steve, other people that are obviously hangers on, Dominic Masters for the others, people like us. Yeah. To what extent do you think that was influencing Pete at that point? And um, and how was how how would you say that Carol was dealing with that? Did it feel as yeah, if well, it was built away? Yeah, that I mean that was massively, I mean. Carl was friendly with all those guys as well, but they were very much Pete was uh, the, the centre of that scene, and that's where a, a schism, a chasm started to, to form between Pete and Carl. They started hanging out with different people. Um, yeah, Pete was Pete's crowd was was extremely druggy, um, and Carl had, had by this stage adopted a much more professional approach to the band because he could see it was going places, mm-hmm. and it was and it, you know he he. It fell upon his shoulders to try and hold it together, I suppose. And the, the worse Pete got, the more despairing Carl got, because um, he, you know, he wanted to take it to the next level and uh, bring everything up a level in professional terms. Um, Pete just sort of slipped away, really. Uh, he, he started to, to slip, slip away, basically. And, and you know, in, the next thing you know, there's, there's jail terms and, and, and what have you. Um, so yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, he, he was no no angel, obviously, but it wasn't good to be surrounded by um, a heavy druggy crowd. Mm-hmm. And then he, when, when he came out of jail, he suddenly started being being hang, you know hanging around with people he'd met in prison, like um, yeah. you know small time villains and who, who should never have been in a in a music crowd of people, you know, um, heavy people, just scuzzy people who he'd met in prison. And he's thinking, hold on a minute, you know, one minute you. You're an indie kid who's hanging out with with like minds. Now you've got these horrible people hanging around. It all got really, really dark, and that's what happens with those drugs and then prison and, and what have you. Uh, so yeah, it all it changed. It's so hard to watch and not really be able to to change the course yet. Yeah, well, you know, and of course, I think rehab came in. There, he went to farm place. Um, you know, so it all it all within the space of a year. If you think. Uh, when they felt the first NME cover, that would have been sort of July, August 2002. By the same time, the following year, he's, he's you know he's been in jail, he's uh, he's been in rehab, 
um, it's it all happened so quick. You know, you, you would have thought that that first year would have been just unbridled success and an upward trajectory. And what it was was just complete chaos and the, and the first sort of dissolution of the band falling apart. So it's, um, you know, it's it self-sabotage, you could call it, um, just, you know, succumbing to crazy drug adult sort of influences. Um, but it all kind of fell apart. And Carl, I know, was, was really devastated because he had, got, you know, like I say, was, was on a straighter path by, by this stage. I could see yeah. that if they, if they seized the metal, grabbed the ball by the horns, they could have gone on to be huge much quicker mm -hmm. than they did. Um, and it was all falling apart. And it was, uh, it was horrible for him to see. Um, and it was horrible for, for me to see because I thought we'd just go from strength to strength and Pete seemed bent on, on ruining everything, really. Yeah, because, I mean, at the point where he was out the band and it was coming up festival season, I think, it was Reading and Teen in the Park. Because um, i seen them at Teen in the Park with Anthony Rosamondo filling yeah. in for him. But there was always that kind of hope that Pete would turn up and he would play and he would be back in the yeah. band. But it must have been, at that point, it must have been so far apart that they, they couldn't have him there. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, they should have been doing those festival dates, which is what every band builds up to. They should have been doing that, you know, with a with 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 a plum, and a, and instead they were limping on. You know, I love Anthony; he's great, but he wasn't he wasn't Pete. Um, and the, you know, the whole deal with the Libertines is it's Pete, it's Pete and Carl basically. So you take one of them out of it, the equation, and um, and then of course he's trying to get this other band going. And I I remember thinking. You know, you've got a perfectly good band there. Why, why don't you just stay the course with them? You've worked mm -hmm. so hard to get to where you are, and now you want to go back to the start again with a new band. Um, and of course, Baby Sham has gone to have their own merits. Um, Something you know, I, I like a lot of their music, but why you would want to start again from scratch when you've got mm -hmm. when you when you know you're sailing on course nicely with the Libertines? It made no sense to me, and it was um, obviously informed by crazy drug drug you know influences at the time. Um, and I suppose you know Pete and Carl's relationship. It just it just was too volatile to 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 stay on course at that time, you know. And, and of course, it's went on for many years. And it only seems to be in the last five years they they seem to be you know on a on a steady course. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. So at that point, we we baby shambles because I mean baby shambles. They made a good couple of records. Again, there was quite a few lineup changes within that. But what was Carol's perspective of Baby Shambles? And I mean, he must Carol would have knew, knew these guys and and Baby yeah. Shambles. So, what was the feeling like between the two bands then? Like well, I mean, at that at that point, you know, when Pete came out of prison and was was getting Baby Shambles together, you know, he, had, he had the shaved head. You know, he looked different. You know, everything had just sort of changed. He lost a lot of weight. Um, they didn't. I don't think he had much contact with Carl because you know he burgled him, and there was there was some kind of there was you know there was a lot of resentment. Carl was off trying to trying to just drag the corpse of the Libertines around and keep it alive. Pete was was starting off. I don't, I just, so I don't think towards the end of two thousand and three they saw much of each other, mm -hmm. um, and then they came back together. I'm, I'm getting my timeline wrong here because he came out of prison and they got back together, didn't they? That's right. Yeah, that Carl and Ken. And in Chatham, yeah, and then, and then it looked like then, like there was, you know, there was going to be um, a new lease of life, and of course that, that's when they went down to Alan McGee's house 
in Wales, which is about a mile from where I am now, uh-huh. um, and all that craziness unfolded. So, Carlos, you know, let his face open. Yeah. So any hope that coming out of prison and getting back together was going to be some sort of reconciliatory fresh start, you know, went out the window straight away. The yeah. craziness began. The crazy, yeah, I'm getting my timeline wrong there slightly. Yeah, it was prior to going to prison that they, they, they didn't see it, see much of each other. When he came out, the liberties started again um, in earnest. And of course, did some nice, they did some good gigs after that Christmas at the Forum. We supported them, that's right. Um, they were on the cover of the NME Christmas edition, as I recall. Um, that's so it, looked, it looked like it, it looked like everything was back on course to the untrained eye would have done at the time because McGee was manager. Uh, they were getting the second album together, but behind the scenes, it was as crazy and as volatile as ever. Yeah, I mean, during the recordings of that album, they had security guards and things to keep them apart, didn't they? That's right. They these two big brothers from Leeds, these two like man mountains that McGee knew of. He they'd done some security for him in the past, um, so they had to be pulled apart in in the in the recording. So going to prison. Coming out, it had had no effect on Pete in terms of, you know, calming him down at all. Um, again, he was still young at this stage, 24, 25. Um, and a lot of a lot of resentment, a lot of craziness that went into that second album. The second album is great, but it is much darker than the first album. Mm-hmm. You can hear that they've, there's a lot of uh, tension going on, but it's still made for a fantastic album. Um, and I think it was around the time of, 2004 and that, that that had come out pretty much as soon as it came out it all fell apart again mm-hmm. um, and of course Baby Shambles had come on a little bit because the people were still doing that and then they kind of almost had a, a better sort of shelf life than the Libertines for a year or two after that mm-hmm. um, and left Carl sort of floundering trying to put dirty pretty things together um, so yeah well, so I mean, Dirty Pretty Things as well was um, they were a decent outfit, but it, it just felt as if Carol's heart wasn't in it the same. It, it didn't seem as if he, he took it seriously. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he was lucky to get straight back into a, you know, a, a band that could trouble the charts and, and could have a profile and do festivals. But yeah, you're right, his heart wasn't in it because it was always about him and Pete, you know, for all the craziness that went with it. He, 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 you know, he believed in that. He believed in their partnership. And suddenly it's gone. Nobody knew it was going to come back together with you know over the years um, mm-hmm. and be in a happy place that it is now in 2023. At the time, it looked like it was lost forever, and um, it was the dark time. And he, you know, he was he was a, I, see, I saw quite a bit of him around that time, and he was a very troubled soul, even though he was having moderate success with dirty pretty things. Um, Baby Shambles sort of stole a march on them, in, in my opinion. They seem to be doing more worthwhile stuff. Um, the records were better, and his profile by this stage had gone through the roof with the tabloid thing. You know, it was a different proposition altogether. Yeah, I mean, you had the Kate Moss. Kate Moss was there or thereabouts as well at that point as well, which kind of yeah. catapulted them. That's right. It became a, a completely different proposition, and it was uh, the Libertine's name almost got forgotten, and it was all about Pete Doherty. So. Yeah. Um, you know, he became someone that everybody in the country knew knew about, um, which is so far removed from two or three years prior when they were just a, a, a cult indie band. It all changed, um, you know, when you had the internet taking off as well at that time. So it, it, it all, it, it's all exploded in a, in a negative way, really. 
obviously, I mean, what's forgotten and all that is up like people like yourself and obviously Carol have mentioned um, how hurtful it is for you to see them. Obviously, Lisa was um, pregnant with Pete's child. So yeah. is that is that how kind of Kill City, was that the demise of Kill City when a steel came on the scene? And Well, not so much that. I mean, couple, we had a couple of years after that. Um, I think I, I left because I just, my book had come out and I, I, I'd sort of got more interested in writing and stuff. And um, I was always a bit older than, than the Libertines, I still am, uh, six or seven years old. I felt, you know, by this stage, I was in my early 30s. I wasn't really comfortable jumping around on stage with an audience of like 19, 20 year olds. So I was starting to drift out of playing anyway. Um, so, yeah, Kill City limped on, I think, a little bit after that. Then Lisa got into other things. Um, and of course, yeah, she had the kid by then. And... Um, you know, we kind of lost touch. I'd see Pete sporadically and I'd see more of Carl, really. But, I mean, since 2006, 2007, I've not really seen much of Pete, to be honest with you. Right. Um, um, I'm still in touch with John. I mean, if I saw Pete tomorrow or Carl, we'd pick up where we left off, I'm sure. And I've mm-hmm. still got enormous fondness for those guys. I hope they have for me. I'm pretty sure they have. Um, we just um, we went off in different directions. Mm-hmm. Once all that so tabloid, you've never seen them live or anything since then, no. I did see them in, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm jumping ahead too far. When they got back together in 2010, I saw oh. them at the um, at the forum. Funny enough, right. when Roger Roger Sargent made that film, there's only two people in it who speak, and that's me and James Endicott, other than the band. Uh-huh. So I woke up in that film. So yeah, so I saw them around that time. I'm going to need to rewatch that back. Actually, I've not watched that for years. Yeah, that's good. But again, when they got back in 2010, that was all quite kind of fraught even then, you know. Um, uh-huh. And then I saw them again the last time I saw them would have been in Hyde Park in 2014. Yeah, so, I've, seen, I've seen them at Hyde Park and then I've seen them a couple of times since here in Glasgow. I saw them in Ali Pali as well in late 2014. Uh-huh. And then my life changed. I met someone, I got married, I moved out to London and now I'm back in Wales. So, you know, I'm just not in that world anymore. But, it um, does seem the live stuff does seem more polished and kind of they know what they're doing for song to song. It's it's all a bit more professional, yeah. which it, it's oh, funny yeah. seeing it because um, I don't know. I I prefer the ramshackleness of it, the the punk. Well, that's what their that's what their USP was really, wasn't it? it was the ramshackle charm of, of, of not knowing what's going to happen. So I agree with you, and I've seen them on the TV. It all looks, it's, I wouldn't call it polished by any stretch, but it's more its more um, polished than it was. Um, and that takes away a little bit of the charm. But I suppose, you know, you, you're looking at guys now in their early 40s, uh, mid-40s even, um, they're too old to be drawing on their jeans and, and uh, falling off the stage. So, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it's certainly more polished. And i got to say, I wasn't impressed with the last album. Um mm. It's all about those first two records for me. I, you know, I don't blame them for going on and, and, and people still want to see them. But for me, it belonged to a certain time. Well, that is the thing as well. I mean, that, like, when I seen them last year in Glasgow and you look at the crowd and you've got like, people of their age and then you've got youngsters in their early 20s that, that can't remember the, no. the initial success. They, they, they're there for the, the last album. 
Sure. Yeah, when I saw them at Hyde Park, I've got to be honest, I was disappointed the kind of crowd that they were attracting. It yeah. was massive. It was a massive gig, but the crowd was very much like you get at an Oasis gig. I'd seen it the year before at the Stone Roses gigs in Finsbury Park. Very laddie. And nothing wrong with that. You know, I used to be a, a football lad myself. But, um, you know, very boozy, very mm-hmm. pokey. Um, and, you know, it was it was a long way from the original Libertines crowds. You know, they seemed to attract this football um, football terrace kind of uh, crowd. And I was a bit dismayed by that. And it got a bit rough as well. Yeah, I mean, I see that a lot of, a lot of gigs nowadays. The crowd doesn't seem to match the band. Yeah. Like, it is kind of, a lot of these bands now attract a laddie crowd, but if you listen to the band, they're not like that. Even, like, oh. there's a band up here, The Snuts, mm. um, and it's the same sort of crowd they would attract, but you, you speak to the boys and they're, Things they do, they're supporting food banks, supporting women's yeah. rights at gigs and things like that, which is so far away from the crowd that they attract. It's 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 mental. Yeah, no, I, I don't suppose you've got any control over that. If you what what sort of crowd? Certainly, the tabloid thing and and the and the, the craziness attracted a certain t- kind of person to Pete, um, yeah. and they've you know they've retained that crowd. And and uh, I mean, I suppose if you're going to sell out Hyde Park, you're going to get people of all of all shapes and sizes. But um, yeah, I was a bit surprised to see that they had they basically borrowed Oasis's crowd, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, which you, you expected Oasis with, with Liam and his persona. That's that they, they've always had that that crowd. I was surprised to see that Libertines had kind of co-opted it, really, whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. So, what's what's going on with yourself now? Then you you, you says that you kind of concentrated on writing books. So what other yeah. books have you wrote? Well, I, when I when I left London, I, I wrote a book about an old footballer from Swansea. That was a, you know, a tiny concern compared to the Liberties book. Then I ended up making a film about a guy called John Toshak. So uh-huh. um, so I've done two things really, you know, as well as doing other things, bits of but the two projects I've done, which have been uh, my sort of big things, so it's the Liberties book and the Toshak film. And they're both like the ultimate passion projects because um, the two things I'm interested in really are football and music. The Libertines thing, the book was was a dream because you know it, it was so colourful to write about. So I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time for that. And then football, my other love, and John Toshak and Swansea City is my my big passion. Um, so I I managed to make two um, pieces of art, if you like, which mm-hmm. are my are my are my ultimate passions. So I've been really lucky in that, in that sense. Um, and if I don't do anything else creatively, I'll be happy with those two, two things I've done. So, um, you know, I wouldn't call myself a writer or a filmmaker, but I've done both those things. And um, anything, you know, I'm racking my brain for other things which I'm interested in because uh, I'm only interested in doing stuff that I'm passionate about. Yeah. Um, and I was passionate about When you about get music and football, you don't need anything else anyway. It's a... Well, yeah, that, that's been my life since I was... Uh, Five or six, so I don't really. I mean, I, I like film and I like, uh, you know, I like keeping fit these days, to be, to be perfectly honest. Um, but yeah, football and music are all, all I'm interested in. Yeah. So, where, whereabouts can you get this uh, John Toshak film? Yeah, well, that's on Amazon Prime, that is. So, um, that, I'll have a look for that. Yeah, yeah. So, you can, if you've got Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. Uh, it came out last year. That took me six years to make. 
Um, you know, having all sorts of doors closed in my face. Um, getting to know Tosh himself, who'd been my hero since I was five years old. Um, he's a tricky customer as well. A bit like Pete Doherty, not easy to work with. Um, but we got there in the end. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing to, to realise my dream to make that film. Just like he was to write the Liberties book. So, you know, I've been very lucky that of the, the two things I'm passionate about, I've managed to pull off. And, um, you know, I'm just looking around now for another project to put my, get my teeth into. And it'll be something to do with football or music. So mm -hmm. uh, watch this space for that. There's, a, there's another boy, Johnny Owen. I think he's Welsh, is he? Yeah, he's a good yeah. pal of mine, Johnny, yeah. Well, he's made, a, he's made some good documentaries, football ones. Obviously, yes, right. my, my favourite one's uh, The Three Kings, about the Steen, yeah. Shankly and Busby. That's right. Well, I've not seen that one yet, but the, the Forest film that he made about Brian Clough was a big influence on me making the Toshak film. Brilliant soundtrack yeah. as well, isn't that? Yeah, he was very fortunate there that they had a budget for that. We didn't have a budget for a chart soundtrack, unfortunately, but we made our own music for it, which is really, really good. Um, I've got to watch The Three Kings because obviously I'm interested in Shankly because he and Toshak, he was Toshak's mentor at Liverpool. Um, so yeah, I really want to see that. And Johnny's a great mate and he's doing really well. And um, it's great to see because I've known him since I was about 16. Although he supports Cardiff, so we don't get on. <laughs> we don't get on all the time, but... Um, I've had bragging rights over him these last couple of seasons, and uh, let's hope that continues. Brilliant. So we're at the end, really, other than picking your heroes. Um, yeah. So Been giving this some thought, yeah. It depends whether we can we can fit that into eight minutes or whether. Yeah, I, th I think we probably can because it's it's um you know it's not very imaginative. My my heroes. You said four dinner guests. I would have. John Lennon and Paul McCartney, just uh -huh. because you could say John Lennon on his own or Paul McCartney on his own. I think I'd like have them both together to see them bouncing off each other. And I would have the other two, again, not particularly imagine if I'd have Joe Strummer and Mick Jones. Um, right. So you've got two guys who are no longer with us, two who are, who are still with us, but to see Joe and Mick bouncing off each other, John and Paul bouncing off each other um, would be great. And then just to, um, just to sit and watch that. And ask him questions. I met Joe a couple of times, and I've known Mick a little bit through Pete, obviously. Uh -huh. um, never met McCartney, never met Lennon, obviously. Um, they'd be my perfect dinner guests. Um, I'd like to say someone more sort of, uh, what's the word, obscure and artistic, but um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. No, do no. That. Um, and I think, what would I cook for them? Well, I've been making a lot of soups recently. I do a really mean butternut squash soup, so. You probably won't hear that in the same um, same <laughs> breath. So I had the Beatles, the Clash, and butternut squash soup. But uh, I've got one of those hand whisks, so I can make it all nice and nice and creamy. So uh, yeah, so that that was so that's what they'd be eating, and um, we'd have a few drinks, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, they're my heroes, and that's yeah. what I would like. That's what I would like to have around my dinner table. Yeah, they are excellent choices. It does sound as if you're kind of a bit like me, like fascinated with the dynamic between the the two people and bands. Yeah, well, that's interesting you point that out because that brings us back in a in an uncontrived way to to Pete and Carl, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought of that when I when I picked them. I mean, I'm fascinated by Lennon and McCartney. I always have been Strummer and Jones, you know, equally. And you know, you can argue that Pete and Carl are 
in the same, you know, this lofty company to put them in, but, you know, they were a great partnership and are a great yeah. partnership. So they're not too far away from those guys in terms of their influence and uh, the chemistry, you know, they're very similar in, in a fact, in, in, a, in, a, in a way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as a, I mean, as a fan of the Beatles myself, I was always kind of John Lennon. I was always kind of family John Lennon camp up until a couple of years ago. Like, yeah. Taking taking more of an interest in McCartney, yeah. I think probably the film that Get Back film that came out that that helped. Like watching and seeing what McCartney actually done, you're like, well, he did keep it together when that, the band was yeah. falling apart. You know, I've not, I've, I've only ever seen the first episode of that. I've got it on DVD, so I'm going to be watching it in the next week because I can't wait to see it. And uh, I couldn't get Disney Plus. But I'm looking forward to seeing that. I suppose, yeah, it's always been cooler to say John Lennon, isn't it? But I've always been, I mean, I've always loved Wings. My brother was a big Wings fan um, mm-hmm. and McCartney fan. So I've always leaned towards McCartney. So, I mean, I can't decide between them. It's like choosing your favourite kid, isn't it? Um, I would, um, I, I, love, I love them both. And I, I love McCartney's sort of whimsy. I love Lennon's hard, hard edge, you know? And I, I, just, love, I just love them both. And I've got to give an honourable mention to George Harrison as well, because he's not too shabby either. Um, no. Uh, yeah, so so that, you know, between them. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to watching this get back. I saw the first episode at a pal's house, and it just looks fantastic. And uh, Yeah, it's really good. You'll enjoy yeah. it. So I got that on DVD to get stuck into now, in these bleak January nights. So hmm. uh, I'll give that a go. Well, that's brilliant. You've been a fantastic guest. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I'll post um, links to the book and your film. Fabulous. Uh, so people can check them out. But uh, that's it for now. Thank you very much for coming on. Great. Thanks, Martin. It's been a real pleasure going down memory lane. Brilliant, mate. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.